all of us here at Troy Church in Troy, Alabama, thank you for tuning in to our podcast. If you would like more information on who we are, what we believe, or how to get involved, please visit us at troychurch.tv or email us at info, I-N-F-O, at troychurch.tv. Being here was not like the easiest thing. Maybe you've had one too many late nights this week or whatever the case is, but uh, we're glad that you're here to worship with us today. Uh, my name is Eric Law. I'm one of the, uh, one of the elders here, uh, lay elders. Um, and I wanted to recognize today that uh, it's kind of a, a special day. If you're like me, and I see a couple of heads nodding, um, you remember a day like 21 years ago? when it felt like the world changed, um, when there was this hard shift, September 11th. Um, and, and there are some of you, I know, that weren't even alive on September 11th, 2001. Um, and so some of us remember that day as like this day of attack and 3,000 people dying and just extreme heaviness. and. But there are some of you who are here who don't know that day, don't remember that day, um, but you do know that feeling of your world coming apart. Uh, you do know that feeling of, of turmoil and, and strife. And so I think it's important for us to, to recognize that, that we don't walk in here today um, always happy and light and cheerful and, and all of those things. We walk in here with with weight and with uh, hurt and conflict. Um, So I wanted to read uh, the words of the prophet Isaiah from uh, Isaiah chapter 2. And he's he's speaking about um, basically the nations of the Holy Land. And he talks about Judah. And Judah was a tiny little nation that was under heavy attack. Um, These people knew war. They knew strife. They knew grief. They knew loss. Uh, And so he says, uh, The word that Isaiah, the son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem, it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountains of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills, and all the nations shall flow to it, and many people shall come come and say, Come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of God, of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, And that we may walk in his paths, for out of Zion shall go forth the law. And the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations and shall decide disputes for many peoples. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall shall they learn war anymore. O house of Jacob, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. So the prophet speaks about a time when we won't have this turmoil, when we will have a good judge, um, a right judge, um, and when we will live without strife. And what's good for us to know this morning is that we don't just have that to look forward to, but Isaiah says, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. Let us today live in the truth of that promise. 
that he is good, and he reigns today just like he will reign then. And so, um, you know, we're about to enter in a time of worship, and when I worship, a lot of times I like to close my eyes uh, because I don't want to be distracted by everything around me and just uh, think and know um, that he is good and that he reigns today just like he will reign then. And so as we, as we come this morning, let's worship him um, in his truth. Uh, pray with me, okay? Most gracious Heavenly Father, thank you that in our strife and our turmoil, as we come in here today, many of us um, may be feeling just like many of us felt uh, 21 years ago, um, strife and turmoil and hurt. Um, we've got our own battles going on that feel like they're going to tear us apart, that, that churn in our guts right now. God, help us this morning to know your truth. Help us this morning to know that um, we have a great high priest who intercedes for us today. That that war has already been fought. God, help us this morning to turn our eyes to you for our heart's attention, heart's affection, our mind's attention, God, to be uh, keenly focused on you that we can worship you, God, that we can lift our words to you and sing things that are true to you and celebrate your goodness and know that you are for us in Christ. Uh, first through third grade can head toward the door toward Mr. Colby, uh, but before we sit down, before we go into God's Word together, I want to draw our attention to the fact that just our being together is such a thing as we worship, like us coming together and being around each other. Not just our singing together, but also our hearing God's word together. Um, so as a church on a, a late Saturday night, rainy Sunday morning, is kind of walking in all at one time and not getting to interact with each other. I want y'all to just take a couple minutes uh, to say hey to each other. Feel free to move around for a little bit, and then we're going to come back together. But let's acknowledge our togetherness this morning. Take a moment to say hey to each other.
All right, folks, let's move it on back. Take a seat. Some of y'all that hate that are starting to like it. I can tell. I'm, I'm watching y'all. It's such a good thing. It's such a part of our worship. Uh, my name is Zach Spann, and I get to be the lead pastor here at Troy Church. And I've been introducing myself a lot lately because every Sunday, and, and praise God for this, but I see so many people, and I have no idea who you are or where, you, where you're coming in from, and that is so good. At the same time, uh, it, it begs us wanting to know who you are, um, especially if, if you're coming seeking out a church home, you don't have that um, in your life. And I'll be the first one to tell you as one who experienced this, even when uh, Troy Church brought Fran and I and our family here in, in 2018 as a mobile church that's here. And then after church, we quickly are not here, like no sign of us being here. It can be really difficult to get past just coming and going. And you could come and go for a really long time and never really truly be a part of us or engage with us. And that, that, that's horrible. We don't, we don't want that to be a thing. Um, and there's some opportunities coming up. You'll hear about another one uh, in our announcements. But one I want to point out to you is Troy Church 101. That's coming up this afternoon. Um, it's from 5 to 8, which is a really long time. But what it is is the first step towards membership for anybody that would be interested in being a part of us. So we talk about our story. We talk about our strategy, our structure, what we believe, who we are, all those things. It's a really sweet time. We feed you and watch your kids also, um, and it's right here. Uh, so it's today, um, and, and last-minute sign-ups, uh, we're down to figure that out. Like We'll work that out, so you can go to that connections table in the back and uh, just invite you. If, if you're kind of not sure about who we are enough to even step towards us, this will be a great first step. And it's not you making that commitment yet, it's you checking us out. I mean, you're spending an evening with us, so I want to push you towards that. We'll be headed towards Genesis chapter 30 today, if you want to head that direction. As we approach this story, um, I think about our church, and a lot of time when I think about Troy Church and our age, we're eight years old, uh, and that's how old my oldest kid is, Joan. So uh, I often look at him and think a ton about our church as far as our life cycle and like where we're at is a church. So not all the things, but so many things Jones is doing on his own now that he used to could not. That was not always so. I remember watching him born, and I remember those weeks and months, you know, after, you know, bringing him home that he was a thousand percent dependent, like not, not providing anything towards us, really, like it was all, all take from his end. But now he's at this really cool age where he's learning to do things, he can put on clothes and, and you know, fix his snack and all those kind of things. And not only that, but we're getting to watch and learn about what he's like, like learn his personality, learn what he's good at, what he doesn't like, see how he interacts in relationships and all those things. And that is so fun, but it's also really scary as we look kind of at this fork of the road and uh, accept the fact that the next five to ten years of his life will be completely crucial as far as development in his direction and his pathway and so definitive on who he will be as a, as a man and hopefully a man in Christ. So we walk through that with excitement and joy, but a, a lot of humility. So much like Jones, we look at our church, an eight-year-old church, 
you know, approaching this critical time where you know, our culture, kind of like wet concrete, is starting to, to firm up and our direction and as leadership, we are humbly asking God, what do you want us to do? You've given us these people, you've given us these resources, you've put us in this city. What do you want us to do? We want to do what you want us to do. There's so many things that we could, we could do and following other structures or other people in other places. What do you want us to do here in this time that is so definitive, again, where the next few years will really set who we are as a church? So yeah, as leadership, we find ourselves feeling in a, in a kind of base camp. Like we're looking up at a mountain face and being like, where do you want us to go? In this time of preparation, um, this time of God equipping us to do uh, whatever it is that he will be telling us to do. Some of those things we feel so sure about, like what we get to do after service for lunch today. For some of you, the family discipleship thing. Or like, what does it look like to follow Jesus in the house? Like to not compartmentalize Jesus to church stuff. Like we feel so sure about some of those things in direction. And other things are like, we really don't know, God, what do you want us to do? But as we stand here at kind of this preparation point, we're asking that God would be really loud and clear to us as leaders. And that's very similar to the situation that we find ourselves in, in Genesis this morning. And I think it's a really cool story with all the weird situations and broken people that we've become accustomed to as we've gone through Genesis. A really cool spot for us. If, especially if you're new to us, I want us to review and preview just a little bit. So in our walk through Genesis, we start at the beginning. We're a, a, a little bit over halfway. We're with Jacob. If you don't know anything else, know that he's a kind of a, a patriarch head guy as far as God's people. So we're with this guy, Jacob. We've seen him marry a few times at this point. At this point, he's fathered most of who will be the 12 tribes of Israel. Like They'll form a nation. They'll form God's people. And we saw that kind of come about last week through a really weird, hard situation. Backtracking a little bit more, we see Jacob, this guy, trick his blind dad into riding him a little higher up in the wheel over his older brother Esau, who's a big and scary guy. And Esau, rightfully so, is pretty hot and upset about this. So as we approach this story today, the situation, this is important. What you have is Jacob in this place of hiding. He's hiding from his brother Esau who wants to kill him for this treachery that, that he's led him to. And in this place, we see Jacob have multiple wives, have all these kids through, through a messy situation. And we looked at all that last week and went for just a mindset shift, kind of looking at all the dysfunction in this story, you know, kind of creating an expectation in us as followers of Christ that stuff will be hard. That will be part of it this side of eternity and, and God's the fruition of all things that God is doing. So that was last week. Next week, we're going to be in Genesis 32. We're going to see a huge turning point in Jacob. Yeah, up to this point, he's been a manipulator, deceiving. We'll see more of that today. Yeah, next week, his behavior really changes. We see a different kind of person. And not only that, we see him encounter God in a a very big, huge, dramatic way, and I'm excited for that to happen. This week, I want to frame that in the middle. Like, what happens from Jacob over here and all this mess and immaturity and deception, and over here where Jacob is being changed as a person and literally meeting God, like touching God, wrestling with God, as we'll see in Genesis 32. And I want to kind of frame that in view of our church in this in-between. 
where we look back and see God's goodness in His hand. We look forward with, God, what do you want us to do? We know you have us here for a purpose and reason. And us to subject ourselves as a church and as individuals to embrace God's activity in our life now. And for you to hear and buy into the fact that God is moving you towards Him. That God is moving you towards Him, and He's doing that through a lot of circumstances and means that we get to see in this story. So that's what we're going to look at. Uh, I'm going to pray for us. We'll start in Genesis 30. It's a lot of territory, and instead of trying to go real fast like I'm prone to do, I'm going to do parts of it and go slow through parts of it for us and kind of follow this theme through here. So let's pray. God, help us see how you work through this story. Help us meet with you. God, connect us to this time and place and people that seem so far in culture and in practice, but in their dysfunction are so close. God, show us our need of Christ and how you have met it in Christ. Help us meet him as a living person, not a distant past figure. And we ask through him. Amen. So we'll look at four things today in these kind of chapter and a half, and there are four ways that we see God move us towards Him, like things that God uses and works through to, to come towards us and to move us towards Him. We'll see them in this story and kind of reflect on them as they appear in our life. The first is desire, desire or want. So God uses desire or want to move us towards Him. Uh, chapter 30, I'm going to pick up in verse 25. I'm going to read 25 through 31 of Genesis chapter 30. As soon as Rachel had born Joseph, Jacob said to Laban, Send me away that I may go to my own home and country. Give me my wives and my children for whom I have served you that I may go, for you know the service I have given you. But Laban said to him, If I have found favor in your sight, I have learned by divination that the Lord has blessed me because of you. Name your wages and I will give it. Jacob said to him, You yourself know how I have served you and how your livestock has fared with me. For you had a little before I came and it has increased abundantly. And the Lord has blessed you wherever I turned. But now when shall I provide for my own household? He said, What shall I give you? Jacob said, You shall not give me anything if you will do this for me. I will again pasture your flock and keep it. So Jacob is hiding out with his in-laws. He's staying with his in-laws. He's married these wives. He's growing this massive family. And he's growing a, a, a massive amount of wealth through livestock. So he's growing this. He's establishing himself. He's been in this hiding spot for 14 years. It's a long time. But he has not forgotten that back home where God had promised in his journey to this place to take him back, there's a big, burly, big brother that is really mad about the whole will situation that is bent on getting revenge by killing him. So Jacob is like, I want to go back home, but Esau's there, he'll probably kill me. Yeah, I'm, I'm here with my in-laws in this point. Yeah, my in-laws are really amazing. Uh, we lived with them through two renovations, and they're great. Laban, not so much. Like, things are getting pretty tense here with Laban and uh, Jacob and these in-laws in this situation. And even as tense as it is, though, it's probably a little less tense than a death threat. 
But even against that, we see Jacob desire to go back home. He wants to go back home, perhaps recalling what God had told him about his situation. And he wants to go there and we'll see God use this desire, this want in Jacob to move him towards himself. So God using a desire in Jacob to move Jacob towards God, move him toward a place not only of restoration and maturity for him, but in an encounter with him, a moment with the Lord. We'll see Laban delay him, but the desire will prevail that Jacob wants to go here. And I want to take you in this right, right after what we're after. In God moving you towards him, desire is huge. Your want is huge. I think one of the biggest like people pastoral lessons I've had to accept in my few years is that people do what they want to do. Like People are going to do what they want to do, which is really cool if the desire is good and if the want is good. Jacob here's desire is in line with the, with the promise that God had spoke over him. It's in line with God's promise. And I want you all to hear this. Transform desire, transform want is something that Jesus does in us. Transform desire is something that Jesus does. I want to name a glaring reality that you might not want to. As a church, we're convinced that time with God regularly should be true of you, that Jesus-based relationships should be true of you, leveraging your gifts and locale for the gospel should be true. Integrating, letting Jesus into your house, into your marriage conversations, into your parenting, we are sure of that as leadership as a church. I think... Most days, all of us that are a part of the church would want those things to be a reality in our life. But here's the glaring reality. I think if we're honest, a lot of days, these are things that we don't always want or desire. We don't desire the things of God a lot of the time. You know, maybe I'm alone. I think about just the morning this week. I got up. Nobody else was awake. It was quiet like perfect window or opportunity in the midst of a week that had been really weird to sit with God and kind of put my thoughts and feelings before him to hear from him through the Bible. And two minutes later, I was watching the Braves recap and I wanted to do that more. Like I wanted to watch the Braves recap more than be with Jesus. I wanted to do that more. And it was a frustrating realization for me and frustrating for me to realize that a lot of times I desire the world more than I desire doing the things of God or positioning myself before God. <clears throat> My mind was drawn to Ephesians 2, chapter 3. In Ephesians 2, 1 through 2, Paul is like, you were dead. Like this where you were before Jesus. Dead, rebelling against God, following Satan, and something really profound hit me out of Ephesians 2, 3. Paul says, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. Carrying out the desires of the body and mind. So Paul's saying, you... Before Jesus, as a dead, lost person, one of the characteristics of that is you did what you wanted to do. Your desires were framed by you. They were framed by the world. But that next verse in 2.4, Paul says, But God, being rich in mercy, made us alive in Christ Jesus. On in the bottom of that passage in Ephesians 2.10, created us new in Christ Jesus for good works. Desire is a chief object of gospel change. It's a chief part of what the gospel does for us. Ignoring the reality of residue of worldly desire in us is, is to ignore our need of Jesus in a lot of ways. 
a Jesus that is alive. And I would just frame up as a church and as a people. And instead of ignoring just the reality of those desires that are, are counter to so much of what God would have us step into, what if we brought them to him and said, Jesus, like, I want to want to be with you, but right now I'd rather do this. Like, I'd rather do this. I think we'd find that Jesus encountering us and our transparency and humanity, like, that's in his wheelhouse. He, he does that. He's good at that. He can handle that. And as he transformed that, and when we're with him and with his people firmly, we can actually pay attention to these desires that God would bring about in our hearts to move us around and, and lead us as we walk through the world. And I think that's what Paul means in Galatians when he talks about walking by the Spirit. I think that's what it looks like. So I'd ask you, what do you want? Like, what do you desire? And like, what do you want to desire? We see God move Jacob by desire. Second thing is provision. So we see God move Jacob by provision. And uh, provision is the church word for what you need. Like, what do you need? Jacob, God gives Jacob what he needs, and it's a part of him moving him towards him. We're looking at 30, 32 through 43. I'm going to paraphrase this for you best I can. I encourage you to go back and read it. It's kind of weird. It's a little weird situation. Jacob agrees to stay a little longer, and he strikes up this deal with Laban. And both of these guys are master manipulators. This kind of liar against liar, striking this deal, very skeptical of each other. Jacob says, hey, I want all the, the ugly sheep like to start my herd. If they got spots on them, wrinkles on them, blemishes on them, like, I want those sheep. And that's it. I'll tend to them while I take care of your sheep. And when you let me leave, I want to take all the, the jacked up sheep with me. So Laban gets suspicious, and rightfully so, so he gets his sons to watch over Jacob's batch of sheep, and Jacob actually tends to Laban's smooth-looking sheep. And we see Jacob do some weird things with some sticks. He cuts up some sticks, he puts them in the water trough of the sheep, kind of this attempt to genetically like manipulate what's going on with the sheep so he can get more spotted sheep for his flock. Yeah, a lot of people think this is in the same vein as last week with Rachel and Leah and the mandrake deal, like some superstition going on with him trying to let the sheep look at some cut up sticks and they come out with spots on them that's the best we can tell selectively breed these sheep so i want us to look down at 43 thus the man talking about jacob increased greatly and had large flocks female servants and male servants and camels and donkeys so jacob's flock does grow and he builds massive wealth and stability but even he'll finally acknowledge um, in 31, just as he was promised in chapter 28, this wasn't Jacob being smart or some genetic expert with his weird branch things. This was God working and doing providing. This is God amassing flocks for Jacob, preparing him for his trip to, to flee back home and get out of this toxic place with his father-in-law and all these situations. Even though Jacob thought he was doing this and providing this increase, it was God providing for him. We see Jacob kind of following this old family trap. God says this, so I have to manipulate. I have to help God to make this happen. God's probably like, man, I got you. I told you I'd increase your flocks, but you can do the stick thing if you want to. Like, that's fine. For us, I want you to hear this. Your lack, what you don't have, what you need, is a place for you to meet a living Jesus in. 
Your lack is a place for you to meet a living Jesus in. Of course, there'll be effort and discipline in the Christian life a lot. But if we think our being changed to look more and more like the person of Jesus each day is a product of our own effort, then when we fail, the answer will be, you're not doing enough, so go do more. It'll be the cyclical, frustrating cycle of actually going backwards. If we're constantly acknowledging that God is the provider, that He gives us what we need, then when we fail, we go to Him, and we confess the need, we're with Him, we're truly changed, and then put in a place of thanks and worship and in real action. God moves towards us through our lack and need. To the Jew that Jesus walked among in His earthly ministry, exhausted by trying to like keep the law and do good enough to be good with God, Jesus says, come to me in Matthew 11, all who are weary, and I'll give you rest. You'll find rest. So just in view of things we're calling you to as a church, if, if you don't think you're smart enough or trained enough to do Jesus in your house, I'm so glad. And I invite you to the hand of the provider. I invite you to that place. And I ask you to ask yourself, where am I overwhelmed by my spiritual lack? You know, where are you sidelining yourself over what you don't know or what you don't think you can do as far as being used and leveraged by Christ and His kingdom work in you and in your house and beyond? And we see Jacob being moved by God through provision, God preparing him, giving him what he needs to go to a new place. I think God would give us as a church what we need to go to anywhere and everywhere that he tells us to go. So provision. Third thing, this is my favorite, but if I say that, you probably should be nervous and scared. <clears throat> detachment. So God moves Jacob through detachment. So this is going into chapter 31. Um, and chapter 31, if you'll flip, is really long. And you need to read it when you go home. I'm going to read chapter 31, verses 1 through 7 for us now. Now Jacob heard that the sons of Laban were saying, Jacob has taken all that was our father's, and from what was our father's, he has gained all this wealth. And Jacob saw that Laban did not regard him with favor as before. Then the Lord said to Jacob, Return to the land of your fathers and your kindred, and I will be with you. So Jacob sent and called Rachel and Leah into the field where his flock was and said to him, I see that your father has not regarded me with favor as he did before, but the God of my father has been with me. You know that I've served your father with all my strength, yet your father has cheated me and changed my wages ten times. But God did not permit him to harm me. Jacob hears these rumors about Laban's son saying like, hey, Jacob's like getting on my dad's sheep and like making his own wealth and fortune and he's taking advantage of us and our family and taking what belongs to us. He hears rumors of Laban, his father-in-law, getting angry with him at his prosperity and God's like, all right, Jacob, it's time to roll. Like, we got to get out of here. It's time to go back home. So we see Jacob wisely consult with the wives, plural, which is messed up and complicated. And they say, hey, God has you, but it's really on the basis of the fact that their dad has really hung them out to dry also. But nonetheless, they say, we're ready to go. Let's leave. So I'm going to bring us down to 17. 31, 17. Jacob arose and set his sons and his wives on camels. He drove away all his livestock, all his property that he had gained, the livestock in his possession that he had acquired in Padan Aram to go to the land of Canaan, his father Isaac. Laban had gone to shear his sheep, and Rachel stole her father's household gods 
And Jacob tricked Laban, the Aramean, by not telling him that he intended to flee. He fled with all that he had and arose and crossed the Euphrates and set his face towards the hill country of Gilead. So they pack up and they leave, maybe under cover of darkness without telling Laban. And this isn't just him and two wives. This is him and actually four wives, tons of servants, a ton of people, tons of livestock, a massive undercover movement of Jacob to take his whole household and go back home. So we see Rachel oddly steal these household gods. You're like, what in the world are those? Have you ever seen Gladiator and seen Russell Crowe with his little figurines before he goes and does his Russell Crowe stuff? Yeah, these are little things that in this pagan land just represent the the multiple deities of these people. But even more so uh, represented in this time some family rights over all the property. So most likely this is Rachel being like, well, if my dad catches up with Jacob and kills him, yeah, I'm going to steal all the deeds out of the safe. So I got some insurance if this plan goes awry. Yeah, and I'm going to be okay and settled. So they jet, they run, big fam, big animal pack, probably moving slow, and Laban catches up to them. So we're going to pick up there where Laban catches up. This is verse 26. Laban said to Jacob, What have you done that you've tricked me and driven away my daughters like captives of the sword? Why did you flee secretly and trick me and did not tell me? I might have sent you away with mirth and songs, with tambourine and lyre. And why did you not permit me to kiss my sons and my daughters farewell? Now you've done foolishly. It's in my power to do you harm. But the God of your father spoke to me last night, saying, Be careful not to say anything to Jacob, either good or bad. And now that you've gone away because you've longed greatly for your father's house, but why would you steal my gods? Jacob answered and said to Laban, Because I was afraid, for I thought that you would take your daughters from me by force. Anyone with whom you find your gods shall not live. In the presence of our kinsmen, point out what I have that is yours and take it. Now Jacob did not know that Rachel had stolen them. So Laban gives Jacob this speech like, man, you didn't have to run away. Like, this would have been fine. I would have thrown you a huge going away party. And we could have celebrated this, but you've messed all that up through your action. And Jacob, without having all the facts, without knowing what one of his wives had done to Laban and his little God figures, gets very angry and proceeds even more so in the following verses to really let Laban have it. This is Jacob being like, Laban, hey, nobody got your gods. I've worked for you 20 years at this point. You've gone back on your words so many times. I'm out of here. And we see this tension and conflict between father-in-law and son-in-law. We hit this last week a bit, but Jacob is so offended throughout these chapters by Laban, yet they are so much alike. They're so much alike, like two thieves robbing each other back and forth. We see Laban portray Jacob's worst manifested distrust and manipulation. Man, we can have fun with that concept. But for now, this is what I want you to see. Jacob must leave this place and his father-in-law behind. He must leave this place. He must detach from this place in this father-in-law Laban. As God prepares Jacob for some new things and new encounters, there's detachment. There's some letting go. There's detachment from bad positioning. There's even some detachment from his old way of handling things, and they literally chase him down as he tries to leave the situation. God has to make detachment to go forward, letting go of things to go forward. 
And for us, for you, count on detaching from some things as God moves us, moves you, moves your family from one place towards Him. There will be detachment. There will be letting things go. I almost wrote following Jesus is almost always, but that's not true. Following Jesus is always synonymous with leaving things behind. It always is. It always is. We read through the Gospels, we see disciples left their nets and followed Him. Matthew leaving the tax booth and following Him. We see the believers in Acts sell all they have. We see Jesus talk about if you put your hands to the plow and look back, you know, let the dead bury their own dead, that kind of thing. It's always synonymous with leaving things behind. I would have so much easier of a run, as I've, as I've told you, I'm a recovering people pleaser. It would really fit me well as a pastor to be able to tell y'all, like, hey, here's Jesus, here's God's people, here's God's mission, y'all come be a part of this. And you know, all the other things that make up you and who you are, your background, culture, things you do like and come from, you can keep all that stuff too. You can have the cake and eat it too, but it's just not true. Following Jesus is always synonymous with leaving things behind. I think there's the obvious list of church sins, sins we talk about in church, and those very much should be there, but I'm even talking about the more subtle things that make up how we posture ourselves in our city around all the people that we're around. Even a resolve to be for... Um, some of the things that aren't bad at all, some really good things in our life, maybe really good things that are not bad in of themselves, but they're simply crowding Christ out in a lot of ways. To ask, him, is my family positioning well to worship a living Jesus every day? And I dare you to ask this question of God in prayer today. Y'all come back to this. What needs to go? I dare you as an individual or a family to just put that on the table for Christ. What needs to go? What needs to go? What's hindering me and you? What needs to be out of me, out of my house? What needs to go? What do I need to detach from? So we see detachment from a place and some relationships be vital, be pivotal in God moving Jacob towards himself. Last thing, y'all hang with me. Covenant. So we have desire, we have provision, we have detachment. Last thing, covenant. God uses a covenant to move Jacob towards him. So this is in 43 through 55. So I'm going to chapter 31. I'm going to read verse 43 through 45 and skip down a little bit. Laban answered and said to Jacob, These daughters are my daughters. The children are my children. The flocks are my flocks. And all that you see is mine. But what can I do this day for these daughters or for their children whom they have born? Come now, let us make a covenant, you and I. Let it be a witness between you and me. So Jacob took a stone and set it up as a pillar. Let's skip down to 51. Then Laban said to Jacob, See this heap and the pillar which I have set before you and me. This heap is a witness and the pillar is a witness that I will not pass over this heap to you and you will not pass over this heap and this pillar to me to do harm. The God of Abraham, and the God of Nahor, and the God of their father judged between us. So Jacob swore by the fear of his father Isaac, and Jacob offered a sacrifice in the hill country and called his kinsmen to eat bread. They ate bread and spent the night in the hill country. Early in the morning, Laban arose and kissed his grandchildren and his daughters and blessed them. Then Laban departed and returned home. 
So Jacob and Laban move on. They come to this agreement through a covenant. They Literally, the word is cut a covenant. There's an animal that's cut and sacrificed and this monument set up. And this is basically Jacob and Laban saying, hey, I'm going to stay on this side of the rock pile up here on the hill, and you stay over there. And we never hear of Laban again after this point in Scripture. This passage has been made to sound sweet and cool. It's called the mitzvah blessing. They make little Nicholas Sparks lockets that separate, and you can wear one, I can wear one, and God's with us wherever we go. Make no mistake, this is a covenant over tension. This is a covenant over separation and and, and disagreement. This is a contentious agreement to disagree and split and separate. This is a line in the sand between Laban and Jacob. It's a very important, a pivotal part of of God's people in their history, but it's a very human. It paints an important picture, though, and we'll end with this. Just as Jacob moves, just as God moves Jacob towards himself through a covenant, he does the same with us. But it is such a different covenant. It is such a different covenant. In our very similar Laban-like, Jacob-like, distrust, lying, manipulation, envious fear, God has cut a blood covenant with us, not through an animal, but through His Son. And it is the opposite of a covenant of separation. It should be a covenant of separation. God has every right to come down to us and say, hey, yeah, I said this, I gave you everything you needed, you rebelled against it, so you stay over here and I'll stay over here, lest my wrath and anger that I'm right to have against you consume you. And God comes towards us and cuts a covenant through the blood of His Son, by coming to us that does not separate us, but yet brings us together. It doesn't detach us, but hides us in. It brings us towards Him. And it's a covenant of the blood of God that came and walked and did life perfectly for us and then went to the cross to die for all of our mistakes, rebellion, Spoken thought acted in against God. He seals us in Him through His Spirit. And by the person of Jesus, the the better Jacob and better family leader in a perfect covenant, a covenant, again, that doesn't separate but brings us together. This truth is the basis for any movement between us and God going towards. You need not move on from wrestling with the fact that you can't get to God, but He's come to you. May those of us there remember and depend on that covenant. And may we embrace God's preparation in us. May may we embrace desires, what's there and what we want to be. May we embrace our lack and meet Jesus there. May we say, what needs to go? What are we clinging tightly to that we need to detach from for you to move me from this place as a family person in Christ to this place as we pray those things as a church? May we lay all that up on the table for the surgeon to repair. Let's pray. Thanks again for tuning in. And don't forget to check us out on Facebook, at our website, or even in person right here in Troy. All information and links are in our description. Thank you and God bless.